0: in hindsight, the not having a time frame was a curse and a blessing. It was both because it was like, are we talking a year? In my knowledge, I'm thinking, okay, if he's got the slow kind, he's got a year, 18 months. But if he has the fast kind, then death is going to come sooner and as an educator that was hard for me not having more direction as to look at the time frame
1: this is dishing doulas podcast with joanne hahn and karen hendrickson of deaf doula network international changing the world's approach to death and dying one conversation at a time seriously let's talk Whether you're an end-of-life professional, a family caregiver, or you simply want to gain comfort with end-of-life matters, we're here to help expand your comfort with our shared mortality, end-of-life planning, and the important conversations. The views shared in this podcast are solely those of the hosts and our guests, and are for information purposes only. Be sure to consult with your own health care and legal professionals for any personal, medical, or legal advice. We're here today with Barbara Carnes RN, who is a highly acclaimed and award-winning end-of-life educator with a distinguished career spanning 40 years. Recognized internationally, Barbara is known for her expertise in the dying process and has received prestigious awards, including the NHPCO Hospice Innovator Award in 2018 and 2015's International Humanitarian Woman of the Year. As a speaker, Author and thought leader, Barbara has impacted lives globally through her award-winning DVDs and books on death and dying. Her work focuses on compassionately explaining the stages of dying, addressing life-threatening illnesses, pain management, and providing guidance for caregivers and professionals. Having held various clinical and leadership roles in hospices and home health care agencies, Barbara has been a vital resource for healthcare professionals seeking to understand and communicate the complexities of the dying process to families. Since 1994, she has traveled extensively, sharing her knowledge at national and state conferences, colleges, nursing schools, hospitals, and hospices. Barbara's dedication to the education, care, and support of dying individuals and their loved ones is evident in the wealth of wisdom she has distilled into her materials. Welcome, Barbara Carnes. We are so thrilled to have you with us today. Thank you for joining us.
0: Thank you for inviting me. You know, I love you guys.
1: Oh, we love you
0: too.
2: And so, Barbara, we know that you've been in the midst of some real personal experience over the past number of months with your husband, Jack. And it would be great for us to hear a little bit about your background and experience in hospice care and hospice education for families, in contrast to your lived experience now through the process of Jack, your husband, his illness, and then now in this space and time of being without him.
0: Okay, I'm a registered nurse. I started in hospice in 1980, and my patients, they were my teachers because there wasn't a lot of information out there about what it was like to die. So I went from five years of being at the bedside of countless people to administration and then to teaching. And I'm considered a pioneer and an expert i put that in quotes on end of life during that time my mother my father and my brother died and so i thought i knew about grief last may my husband was diagnosed with cancer of the lung and with my End of life knowledge, I encouraged him to not seek treatment. He was 89 years old, and I didn't think that was appropriate for him to have treatment. So the doctor then said, the oncologist, well, if you're not going to do anything, then don't have the invasive procedure of finding out what kind of cancer of the lung, whether it's fast, whether it's slow, whatever. And so that's what we decided. In hindsight, the not having a time frame was a curse and a blessing. It was both because it was like, are we talking a year In my knowledge, I'm thinking, okay, if he's got the slow kind, he's got a year, 18 months, but if he has the fast kind, then death is going to come sooner. And as an educator, that was hard for me, not having more direction as to look at the time frame. I'd be curious as to
2: what that meant for you. How would it have made a difference? it's not really a
0: failing, but a stumbling block for me was that I gave him more time than he had. And if I weren't emotionally involved, I would have been able to see more clearly his time frame of approaching death, but my perspective was clouded by my emotions and so that when it was all over and I looked back it was like oh yeah of course he did this and this and this but I didn't want to see it so I didn't see
2: it and
0: probably really common oh I think of course it's common whether you got knowledge about end of life I believe we give people more time than they have. We don't want to see the progression. So we close our eyes to it. And then add the fact that for most people, they don't have any role models on what it's like to die. Mm -hmm. And so they don't know what to watch for. And that goes back to the physician's at the very beginning of diagnosis is how they talk and deal with it. When my mother, who also had cancer of the lung, was diagnosed, we knew what it was, and the physician said, if you do not have chemotherapy and radiation, you will be dead in six months. I talked her out of having that, either one of them, but when that six months came she thought that December she was going to die and every day the doctor told me I have six months she believed she was going to die look at the harm that was done in that as it turned out she lived 18 months and once she got to the end of the six months she said Barbara I think you were right.
2: And so that's interesting what you're sharing there, because what I'm hearing is that in the circumstance with Jack, you felt the timeline might've been more helpful to you because you were emotionally in it. And yet at the same time, also knowing that timeline isn't always right on. I knew too much. And I think
0: the actual kind of cancer that he had, knowing that it wouldn't have put a specific number on it, but it would have given me the tools to assess him better and more realistically where not knowing it's like, ah, you know, so he's having a bad day or, You know, I could rationalize his what he was doing.
1: So from diagnosis until Jack died, Barbara, how long was that? Five months. He died in
0: September. And in my head, I thought he would get through the holidays. I was concerned about January for his progression. So I gave him months, really, when he had weeks. And... It wasn't until there was a situation, which I can tell you about, and we brought in hospice, that with the nurse's guidance, she didn't have the blinders on that I did. And so she helped me and the whole family get on a more realistic path.
2: And so I would guess then... That if you had this idea, sort of this expectation timeline around January, and now there's a situation or an event that occurs, that all of a sudden you must have found yourself in this space of shock and realization. Like for you and the family, all of you. Yes. What's happened here? It happened
0: so fast. And I look back and look for... At what point did he really come to the belief that he was dying and let go? Because he wanted to live to see the results of the election in 2024. That was what he wanted. And so we all kind of bought into that. And I think when he realized he couldn't get out of bed and go to the bathroom, he was very proud and he did not want to use a urinal or a diaper. And I believe the night that we stood him up at the side of the bed and I held the urinal and we got him back in bed and I said, we can't do this again. And within 48 hours, he was gone. And we have limited control over the time that we die. Limited, but we have it. And I think that was the the actual turning point that he was done. Now, there were other things that led up for me bringing in hospice, which was here like a week and a half. But that to me is the moment that he really let go. So what prompted you to bring in hospice, Barbara? He started sleeping with his eyes partially open, which was new. And he was not getting out of bed except to go to the bathroom. And I thought, okay, labor has begun, which is one to three weeks. So I called the the oncologist and said, I want a hospice referral it was over Labor Day weekend. And so although I called on Friday, no one came out until Tuesday, which I have a problem with. So they came out, admission nurse came out and then it was another day or so before the primary care nurse came. And by then, he was really much more advanced in his labor.
1: What kind of services did the hospice uh, nurse provide? I think she was probably
0: a little nervous because the hospice uses our materials and she knew who I was. So when she came in the door, I said, I'm Barbara, Jack's wife. I am not Barbara, hospice educator. And she really got that and guided us. She was careful with her words, she wasn't as direct as she could have been. But she was gentle and came every other day. And then one Friday, she said, you know, I'm going to work on Sunday, I'm out anyway, how about I just stop by. And so she did. And she was here when he died. And when she came in, I thought, we need a Foley. And she started giving him a bath. And he was totally non-responsive. And that was a beautiful thing that she did, I felt, just giving him a bath. And my daughters and I were there to help and his breathing changed and he was totally non-responsive and she stayed until after he died, which is what I think end of life work and care is about, is having someone there, a quiet, but reassuring person. And she, she wasn't even in the room with us. She was out in the living room giving us our privacy and our moment, but the comfort of knowing she was there was wonderful, wonderful for lack of a of, of a better word. It was very comforting
2: and she allowed us our space and our privacy. I'm curious, Barbara, you have a very large and close family and I'm curious if through this process they were all looking to you as the expert in the uh, knowing.
0: Interesting question is that, you know, my girls work for us, for yeah. me and us. So they know as much about end of life almost as I do. But I was mom to them and they listened to what i had to say it wasn't nurse barbara it was mom and in the hours before death they helped me get everyone in to say goodbye their private time and They were amazing in the physical care. I mean, they slept here. He was in a hospital bed. They slept in the king-size bed next to him for several nights so that I could go to sleep. And so they were amazing. And their knowledge, I think, helped. But they respected me as Jack's wife and their mother. So, Barbara, is there anything that you would change? I guess, well, I was going to say I'd call in hospice sooner, but no, I probably wouldn't. It just worked out fine, but it was because of my knowledge and my coming to terms with it. I haven't mentioned, and I think this is important, about a month before he died, I was pushing food the Insure Plus, the protein supplement, you've got to eat, you've got to do this. And we would fight over it because he didn't want it. And so it was getting very tense with my pushing his food and him pushing it away. And one day I thought I am trying to keep him alive. His body and he is trying to die. And that was the shift when I offered, but if he, I didn't push it and he didn't eat it or drink it. And that was kind of an aha moment in what Barbara the wife was doing and opened up Barbara the nurse. So there were those insights, but most of the time I was Barbara the Wire.
2: I don't even know what the word is. We hear so often and we know so much about your work and your educational materials so clearly with respect to food and hydration and the body shutting down in the dying process and not wanting it anymore. And our natural instinct for those people that love you is to push the food. And so I think what's beautiful in this story is hearing that, in fact, at the end of the day, what comes through is our love for our person. It's, yeah. If he doesn't eat, he's not going to live. And I got
0: to feed him. And I've been trying to feed him since the moment of diagnosis. And he was doing with a minor struggle for several months. And then it just got to where it was too much of a struggle. And, and I didn't want memories of discord over my wanting to, him to eat to spoil either his experience or mine. Mm-hmm. But it took that light bulb to go on, that aha moment, because I'm really creating a stressful situation by my pushing him to eat.
1: Yeah. But when we're in a situation that affects us personally, our knowledge sometimes takes a backseat to our emotions. And it's so easy just to get caught up in, you know, come on, honey, I want you to eat because you want him to stay alive.
0: Also, yes, you're absolutely right. Also, which I didn't realize, and this is something I've learned about grief, is there is a difference Between a mother, a brother, a father dying, and a husband or a partner. We were together 65 years and married what, 63 of those years. So every routine, every aspect of my life included him. And what I didn't know about grief, and I'm writing about and trying to support people, is that not only does a widow or a widower um, or someone whose life partner is gone, not only are you emotionally grieving, you have to learn how to live on your own as a single as a me, as an I, instead of a we and an us. And that is a whole different aspect that I never thought about. Because mother, yeah, I grieved, but it's this is different because not only do I emotionally feel the loss, I have to figure out how to pay the bills. I have to figure out what to do in the yard. All those, who feeds the birds or the squirrels? All those chores that he did, I now have to do. Then add, what do I watch at night on TV? He and I watched the news. We had two hours worth of news. Who would think that I would miss it? And yet I do. Because now I have to find what to put in those two hours. Coming home at night alone. I never came in this house alone in the dark. So those are things that I never thought about when I was talking about grieving. And I think it's a unique aspect to grief when you're life partner is gone.
2: And so how does this knowing now or being in the midst of this experience now, how does it feel? I am a doer
0: kind of personality. And so my grief is manifesting in not really a sadness, because The last year or since, well, even before diagnosis, there were challenges. So it's, I talked to him, our pipes froze last night and it's like, Jack, take care of this. If you're there, do something about it. So I think about him, but I'm not mourning him. And I don't know if that's my knowledge. I don't know if it's my belief system in what happens at the end of life. I think that may be part of it because I think that has allowed me to do all the end-of-life work that I have, have done over the years that comfort in my own personal belief system. So I miss him, but I'm learning how to live without him.
1: It's important to have our own beliefs, though, because that can change, I believe, how we approach death. I agree. That's kind of the
0: underlying cushion that gets us through the experience, whether it's our own dying experience or someone we care about dying. Our personal belief system is what gets us through the night. And it doesn't make any difference whether it's true or not. What matters is that we find comfort in the belief system that we have and that it helps us live a better life, a more fulfilled life, a more purposeful life. So people tend to get caught up in in what's true and not true, doesn't make any difference. It's what helps you live your life as a better person.
2: And so, Barbara, you've shared some of your experience through your blogs over the past couple months. And one story that stuck out to me is this vision of you taking out the garbage. And so I'm wondering, are you finding yourself in these situations with anger?
0: I did actually for a while dealt with anger before he died. I was having a really hard time being angry with him for not eating, for not doing what I thought he should be doing. Now that he's gone, I'm not really angry with him, but there's a kind of a life review a relationship review that plays in my mind almost all the time and it's oh yes I'm feeding his squirrels and he loved those squirrels or the fish or I can be angry at times with him for when I'm doing something you know why didn't you Help me know what I needed to do with you gone. I asked him twice, please tell me what bank accounts do we have? You know, tell me. Well, not right now, Barbara, maybe later. So after the second time, I thought he's not going to tell me. But when I'm in the attorney's office or I had to go to the bank and say, how do you write this deposit slip? I was angry. You know, you didn't help me. So there's emotions that come up as it relates to our
1: relationship. Were you angry at yourself for not pushing the issue? No, because I did try
0: twice. And that was in the last five months. I've tried over the years. And I'm not angry with me because I tried. And because Jack is who we was. And that that was his personality. This is my department. Here's your department. And that's how we operate. And that arrangement worked for a lifetime. It did. You know, one of the things that I thought about after he was gone, I have never lived alone. I have never been responsible for me. In my early years, my parents were responsible for me. Then when I graduated high school, I went to three years of nursing school where we had a really tough house mother. And she ruled the roost and was responsible for everything. When I graduated from nursing school two weeks later, Jack and I got married. So I have never been on my own or really even had an idea of questions to ask before I needed the answers. It wasn't till now that these obstacles. or They're not even obstacles. They're part of living that I just didn't have to deal with. Almost every other day, something comes up and it's like, oh my gosh, we really have to do this? And I I was never exposed. So throughout our life, I didn't know that I needed to know.
1: Of course, he was always there to help you out. I know he was. We don't always realize that there's blue jobs for boys and pink jobs for girls. And now you're doing both colors. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. And on some
0: days, it's really hard work. One of the things that has come to my mind is I've got this wonderful family who all live in town, who watch over me, who are going to the attorneys with me who deal with the banks with me. What about the people that the women or the men that don't have the support system? How do they navigate these really rough roads? I've got help, but I know that I'm rare and that most people do not have the help. I remember being on a death call and wife's dead upstairs. He, the husband and I are sitting at the kitchen table and he's crying very appropriately. And he's saying, I don't know how I'm going to live without her. I just don't know how I'm going to live without her. And I'm nurturing and patting him and he gets angry. And he said, you don't understand. I don't know how to cook. I don't know how to do my laundry. I don't know how much money is in the bank. I don't know how to live without her.
1: And I understand him now. Yeah. At say, the time, were you thinking emotionally, he didn't know how he'd go on without his wife? If
0: I'm honest, it was, yeah, he's a man. Men don't know how to do these things. No, they don't. And I didn't really understand him until I was in his shoes.
2: And so I would be curious, since September 18th, you've been in this new realm of living on your own with the cat and Mm -hmm. taking out the garbage and figuring out what makes you comfortable and how you go to bed at night, door closed, door open, whatever the case may be, leaving lights on before you leave the house so that there's a light on when you come, all of these things that you may or may not be doing. What are you learning about yourself in this process now?
0: Oh, good question. I'm learning that what I'm going through right now is an important life experience life is school and it's kind of like i skipped a grade and didn't learn the class in living on your own i didn't have that class and now i'm taking that course so that's kind of how i look at it is that it's a learning adventure and yes i think about him and there are times that i'm sad he's gone and think, oh, I wish you were here to do this. But bottom line, for me, this is another life experience. And this is what I'm to learn now before I'm gone.
1: What a great outlook you have, Barbara. (laughs) Oh, thank you. (laughs) Not everybody can look at things like that in a positive light.
0: Maybe it's because I've been involved with death and dying for so many years that i had to find within myself a purpose of life why why are we on this planet you know what is living about and i think that finding answers within myself to those questions have helped me have this life experience this end of it's not the end of my life experience but it is an end of life experience this is you know this is another lesson in the university of living
2: do you believe that because of your background and experience in your knowledge and you've been also been able to have your children share in that through the work of what you do, that these things and that knowing helped you in relation to navigating some of the fear that can come for uh, a partner when they're looking at the impending or potential dying of their person. You're saying that the knowledge that
0: I have and Jack was exposed to, did that help him in this experience? maybe i don't know for sure we shared a lot of stories and of course we shared a lot of time together i can't help but th- and he was involved in bk books from the time i wrote the first book and he said wow a couple of months before he died he'd sit here in the office so He knew I did give him a time to live when he was diagnosed. I said, I think maybe you ought to reread this. And he did. And the booklet, Gone From My Side, all the rest of the booklets were in his office. Now, whether he read any of the others, I don't know. We've been together so long. He knew signs of approaching death he knew dynamics just from osmosis of living in this house with us. So I think whether it was consciously or unconsciously, he knew what was going on and what was happening. We never had a sit down talk of you're dying now in the couple hours before he died, when we all went in and said our goodbyes individually. I talked to him about that, just to add to the slate, you know, but um, yeah.
2: What an experience. (laughs) What do you think is most important? When we started this conversation today, you talked about how You felt that some of your experience and the sharing of some of your experience would be valuable for doulas to have an awareness and an understanding of. And so how do you feel that they're knowing or, or hearing of this story and being married with a spouse for 65, 67 years, what have you, doing this education, supporting people in end of life, and now being a widow and sharing that experience. How do you feel or you hope that will help doulas in their work well
0: in the dying experience in our work as doulas the moment of death is our goal and everything we do up to that moment of death our teaching our support leads up to our goal and then everything after the death for as long as we choose to we support and guide the family in their grief process. By my sharing my grief process, my hope is that people will be aware of grief is not just being sad and missing the person that's gone. And that's what I thought. I thought it was being sad and missing them and how to travel that emotional road. And what I want all of us who work in end of life to be able to see that there's another component to grief and it I'm going to put it in with grief, but that component is how do you learn to live? without this person in your life and that we who work in end of life with that knowledge in mind can support the caregiver remaining in, you know, how are you doing with with going to the bank? I have a friend who fortunately her husband taught her just before he died, before he became bedfast how to put gas in her car because he was the one that took care of the car and always filled up the gas tank. Who thinks about that? That's a blue job. Yeah, it's a blue job. But she had to learn how to do that. So this experience is let's look at all that the widow or widower is dealing with look at a broader scope rather than just emotionally how are you doing
2: and all of those experiences have of having to learn or even if you knew how to do it but it was never your job to do all of these things are actually secondary losses to the loss of your partner and can manifest emotionally in so many ways some people can navigate recognize it for what it is, have the sadness, be doers and say, okay, I can figure this out. And for others, it could be like the wave of grief slamming them over and over and over again, repeatedly in a day. I, myself personally, my husband is ill. He's chronically ill. He has a debilitating disease and I'm here right now. I hate the pink and the blue jobs that are now yellow jobs that are all my jobs. Yeah. And yet, as I'm listening to you though, there's a part of me that's kind of grateful that already this is, transition is happening, which to me seems crazy hearing myself say this right now, because I will have already done the jobs. I will have already taken over the things before there's death. And so I'm feeling grateful about that right now in this moment.
1: Yeah, because he's still there to help you. When you say, Paul, how do I do this? He can still help you with that. Yeah, he can give me the guidance. As opposed
2: to if you're on the other side of that and your partner has died and now you're trying to figure out how to do this could feel so very different.
0: The isolation comes and I could go in and sit by Jack's bed and think thoughts. Didn't even have to talk. Think thoughts. He was there. Even though he was asleep, he was there. And that's what I hear you saying as well, is he's there. And so even though you're doing all his jobs, he's there. And that's a, a big difference.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: It's also kind of
2: preschool for you. Yeah, it's preschool. Totally. You've talked about this in your blog writing as well. I've talked about your family a lot today because you really do have this family that is so from all that we know and feel from them all right this loving open welcoming family that you've invited us into for all kinds of reasons which we're grateful for but you talked about this at the end of the day they go home
0: yeah they do and you walk into a dark room which I don't anymore because I have a timer on but It's quiet and I hear the patter of Baxter Cat's feet as he follows me and he's all there is, is this furry little ball in this house, dark house, quiet house, and you adjust.
1: Everybody goes back to their normal life. They do.
0: And And your world
1: has changed, right? Yeah.
0: My, what is my normal life anymore? I'm trying to find a new normal, and I haven't found it yet, and you know, I'm trying
1: to find it. Well, it takes time. You it were does. together for so long. It's going to take some time. And I bet you're going to surprise yourself too, Barbara. You'll know, do something and go, hey, I do know how to do that, and I'm feeling okay about that.
0: Yep, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> I'm a quick
2: learner yeah no doubt about that I think an interesting piece to acknowledge in this as well too is that for some widows there can be this you have to relearn or even learn for the first time in some respects how you go on living in your way to move forward for the rest of your life whatever that is and I have heard some widows talk about feeling guilty about the fact that they're still here.
0: Oh, I'm sorry that they're experiencing that because that's really sad. As long as we're breathing, we or someone else is learning something. And that's what life is about. It's school. And so to feel guilty that I'm still here just because my husband died, it really has nothing to do with me. He didn't leave me. He left life. And this is just a part of it.
2: Yeah, Um, No guilt needs to be there. And I guess it's that space again of when we have the opportunity to share information and education and aid people in being comfortable in these conversations and learning and, and gaining comfort with, our shared mortality, the reality that death is a part of life and all of these things, that this collective movement that we're all engaged in making, you know, making the space better for individuals and families and professionals. The hope would be that there comes a point in time when people can have much more comfort and much more clarity and recognize death for what it is, which is simply a part of life a part of the natural process of what occurs on this earth.
0: Yes. Now, one of the things that I think about my reasons for sharing these very personal thoughts is that I think I'm not unusual. I think most people are thinking and experiencing what I'm thinking and experiencing, but they don't know that it's normal. They think, oh, something's wrong with me, when in reality, by my sharing that says, hey, if I feel this way, and then you're reading this, and you can go, oh my gosh, I guess there's nothing wrong with me after all, I must be normal. And so I think that's my key reason for sharing, because I want people to find themselves in me, and know that They're okay. Is there another booklet on the horizon, Barbara? Uh, Well, I don't know that I haven't said this out loud. Nobody knows this. Ready? I started keeping a journal September 1st and would just every day write my thoughts in it. And I, I still write in it. And kind of in the back of my head, I'm thinking maybe someday that would be an interesting book. Just kind of thinking
1: about it. That's as far as it goes, but we'll see. Well, I I think it would be very helpful, even for people to hear your story on this podcast, to know that if Barbara Carnes feels like this, and I feel like this, then I'm okay. Exactly.
0: That's why I'm doing this. Absolutely why I'm doing it.
1: And we appreciate you sharing those those intimate thoughts and feelings, Barbara, because that can change somebody's life. I hope so. I'm sure it will. And so, Barbara, you
2: talked about having the benefit of the family to help you out in some of these difficult circumstances where you're learning yourself for the very first time. And So what would you offer up to individuals who don't have family or a lot of support? What would you suggest they do? Who should they reach out to?
0: There are a lot of bereavement grief support groups, whether they're through churches, Google, caregiver support, grief for caregivers. We love Google. There's a lot of agencies and programs out there hospices they have bereavement support groups even if you didn't have hospice call a hospice and say here's my story can i come to your support group and a hospice should say yes underline should so recognize you don't have to be alone if you go to church Use your church, use your community groups. Senior citizen communities often have grief support groups and Google. Don't do it alone. Don't do it alone because you need to know what's normal and natural versus what is pathological. And most of the time we automatically go to think about pathological when the
1: 90%
0: of what you're experiencing in your grief is normal.
1: It's like the question that never gets asked. You know, somebody's probably sitting in the class thinking of the same question that you want to know the answer to. Absolutely. Good example.
0: And go online and Put in caregiver support, bereavement support for your area. Put your city in there and see what comes up. I think you'll be surprised that there's a lot out there that we're just not aware of because we haven't needed it. Therefore, we don't know that it's there.
1: And there's a lot of online support as well. I know that's not exactly the same as being in the physical space. But it's still better than being alone exactly. And so, Barbara, we're just about ready to wrap up here now. But I'm
2: curious, in this new experience that you have and that you're living in your home with Baxter the Cat, what does your afternoon look like today?
0: Aaron, who works here, my BK Books office is here on the other side of the garage which is a blessing because Monday through Friday I'm never alone if I need someone I go into the garage and go into the office so because we're iced in right now for two nights in a row Erin who if you call the office you talk with her has been here and so we've been watch TV and and eating dinner. Well, tonight, the third night, it's my turn to fix dinner. So this afternoon, I'm going to figure out what being locked in this house because of the ice, go to my freezer and see what what I can make for dinner. <laughs> so Baxter and I may take a nap, who knows, and then plan dinner. But you're the lady that hates to cook. Oh, I know. I know <laughs> You know, you know so much about me. Yeah. Yes, so I have frozen stuff that people make, my kids make, and bring and say, here, put it in the freezer so that you have something for dinner other than a salad with some canned chicken on it. So I'll go to the freezer and see what I can find. Oh,
1: perfect. Are there any words of wisdom or thoughts that you'd like to share with the people that are listening to this? We've
0: touched on an amazing number of thoughts that I want people to hear. I think the most important I want to come out of this is how very normal all that we've talked about is. And that grievers experience all of this. And that it's okay, hurts. It's okay, it's part of life. And it's normal. It's normal. And don't be alone, reach out, find someone, whether it's a friend, find a listener in your grief find someone that you can pick up the phone and say, I'm having a hard time. Just let me talk. Your listener doesn't need words. Just needs an ear. And so if you don't have a support group or community support, then find yourself one person and tell them you don't have to have any
2: answers all I want you to do is listen to me. Great words of advice. Thank you so much, Barbara, for sharing and stepping into this vulnerable conversation with us today. We absolutely love everything that you do in this world and how you show up in your authenticity and your reality of just being a person, just like anybody else who maybe has some extra knowledge around end of life and and uh, how to support individuals and families through that. We're grateful for you. We're grateful that you welcome us into your space. And if anybody's interested in learning more about Barbara, you can learn about her at www.bkbooks.com. Find all of the wealth of information that she's produced there, that she's written, as well as blog writings and sharing. Uh, You're an amazing individual, and this world is such a better place with you. Thank you for being with us. We love you,
1: Barbara. Thank you. You know, you're in my heart that I carry you there. Thank you. Catch the next episode of Dishing Doulas podcast and more at www.ddnint.com and be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast platform. You can send any questions or comments to admin at ddnint.com and connect with us at Death Doula Network International on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for listening to the Dishing Doulas podcast, where we're changing the world's approach to death and dying, one conversation at a time.